When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It's great to be with you, Ashley, and I'm pretty excited about the new addition to our studio. Yes, tell me about it. Um, So I just spent the last... Uh, like I only had to start over once, um, 30 or so minutes building our, our new bar cart. Yeah. It looks amazing. It's only taken us four and a half years. Um, (laughs) but we finally have like a single location where our, our booze lives, where we've got some books, some things sent to us from listeners. Honestly, a lot of it's mostly like quarter filled bottles of different cordials and liquors (laughs) that we've used for ingredients. Yeah. We Um, need to stock up and get a shaker. It's embarrassing the <laughs> way the things we've resorted to to shake and stir our cocktails. But pretty psyched. It's it's the Raskog from IKEA, which has a cult following. I know it's it's very cheap. Um, Are you gonna put this online? Let people judge. I'll, yeah, I'll put it. I'll put it out on social. And okay. If people have ideas for how to yeah, we um, need to decorate that decorate a little this bit more. thing. Yeah, it'll be great. So um, really excited and uh, <laughs> finally we've got some drinks from it too. Yes, we have some Shipyard Brewing Co. Pumpkin Head. So. Yeah, I figured it Halloween last week. It's, yep. it's definitely fall now. Um, and I feel like pumpkin beer has like a, a very short shelf life of when yeah. you can enjoy it because we're almost into Christmas ale already. So I figured we should get these out of the way. Yep. So cheers. Cheers. And who are we talking to this week? We have a great conversation with Ross Douthit. You might recognize that name. We had him on a couple years back now to talk about his book on Pope Francis. Uh, But we have a very different conversation this week about his book about having chronic Lyme disease. It's called The Deep Places, A Memoir of Illness and Discovery. Yeah. Ross typically writes about politics. Um, He's a regular columnist for the New York Times. Yes. And or, or church politics. But this is a real personal memoir about just his own experience with with chronic illness, um, with struggling to navigate the healthcare system, to to find treatment. Ross has written a really beautiful book that uh, really, you know, elucidates, you know, questions of suffering and where is God and all these things. So, um, and what, it, you know, anyone who's ever known someone who has had any type of illness that is longer than, you know, a week or two um, knows how hard it can be to live in that world. Um, and so Ross does a really great job of bringing that out for us. Yeah. And anyone who's interacted with the medical establishment knows yeah. the frustrations of that. And he gets into that and a lot more. So stick around for our conversation with Ross. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. So if you are like us, then you are probably guilty and tired of mindlessly scrolling through your phone, your social media feeds. You probably are binging that same half hour comedy <laughs> again and again and again that you've seen 10 times and you, you feel really guilty about it. Well, that's why we've been loving Wondrium. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M, Wondrium. It's the streaming service that honestly, like our brains cannot get enough of. Yes, I. you know I love podcasts and I love being able to, they have a great, very accessible app. You can download audio versions of the programs right onto your phone and listen to it like a podcast. So when I'm walking to work or on the subway, I can have like really, really high quality lectures and tutorials about any any number of things. Yeah. One of the uh, programs that I've been really into is Life Lessons from the Great Books. Um, taking it back to you know some of my favorite classes from college where um, this is really focused on some of the great books uh, from the Western canon. Uh, so, and it really like boils it down into half hour episodes. It's, uh, if you've ever wanted to know like uh, Dostoevsky or Goethe or, or Shakespeare is Hamlet or something like that. Like it boils down each one of those into a half hour episode. It gives you something to think about. So like for a lot of these, they're things I read in college and I just really need a refresher on. Um, so we're really loving that. This, the, uh, the course is Life Lessons from the Great Books. 
So you can check out that program and thousands of other videos from Wondrium. And if you use our special code, you can get a free trial of unlimited access. That's right. That's a free trial of unlimited access. You're going to want to check this out. Make sure you hit up wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical. Go there so they know we sent you. And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So last week we talked about this on the podcast that uh, this show came out last Friday. Well, in last Friday, President Joe Biden was arriving at the Vatican to meet with Pope Francis. And honestly, I thought that's all we were going to have to to do on that story. Typically, this these meetings from heads of states are pretty, I don't know, they're formalities in some ways. I mean, they're significant, but there's not really like much that I to dissect, partly because what right. they talk about is a secret. Yes. And the Vatican will, you know, always put out a statement afterwards saying it was a cordial meeting, which they did in this case. Yes. But then we got um, and they mentioned that they talked about things like climate change, the COVID-19 pandemic, international conflict. But then Joe Biden made some comments after the meeting that caused a little bit of a media stir. That's right. When President Biden just a a couple hours after was taking questions from reporters about what the two talked about. He said, quote, we just talked about the fact that he was happy. I was a good Catholic and keep receiving communion. Yes. So this comes in the context of this conflict we've talked about kind of endlessly for the past year between Joe Biden and the bishops who are concerned about the scandal caused by a um, pro-choice politician, Joe Biden, being a you know very public Catholic at well. So they've been working on this document on communion that a lot of people have speculated would include a part about when pro-choice politicians should be denied communion. It seems like that's maybe not exactly going to happen. But, you know, Joe Biden was clearly making those remarks in that context. Well, and the other the other piece of context is that so far, President Biden is thus far shied away from really talking about this. So mm-hmm. it was pretty significant that um, he sort of felt that was the first thing that, that he wanted to, that was clearly, it seemed to be clearly on his mind yeah. and maybe, and not some of the other things that they talked about. Right. And Pope Francis hasn't, didn't wade into this until he was asked explicitly um, by America's Vatican correspondent uh, what his thoughts were on this. And and when he was asked on that plain conference, uh, press conference back in September um, about this controversy, he said he has never denied anyone communion and that bishops should act as pastors, not politicians. But he's he wasn't saying he wasn't telling them what to do. No, um, not explicitly. And so. This that's with all that in mind, I still th- one of my big takeaways, and I've been sort of on this on this train for a while now. We can be done talking about this, and w- here's what I mean specifically. I because I tweeted out and this thing out, and uh, <laughs> my cousin texted me and said there were a lot of Bev Keens coming for me. <laughs> um, Midnight ma- Mass reference. Yes, um, we we don't have to continue policing who is worthy and who is not worthy for communion. This is not to say, right, we should be uncritical about our reception of communion, right? It is an important thing, right? It is talked about in, St. Paul talks about it, you know, about making sure you're worthy to receive communion and all that. But Pope Francis has clearly shown us that it's not necessarily our job. It's certainly not our job to do in in such a public forum to be obsessing over whether or not someone is is qualified or worthy to receive communion, right? Like he has made it pretty clear based on uh, his intervention into the auspicious meeting back in the spring, based on his answer to uh, Jerry's question on the plane about he's never denied anyone communion, that there there's definitely another way forward. And the American church has to figure out whether or not it wants to follow this path that Francis is pointing towards, or if it wants to continue Try, trying to litigate in public, in media, whether or not people like Joe Biden or or uh, people who teach in their Catholic schools are going to cause scandal by having some aspect of their life not in, con- in congruency with church teaching. Yeah. One thing I do wonder, though, is, is was it Joe Biden's place to share this, you know, as you mentioned, a private conversation, knowing that it's going, I mean, I assume he has to know that this is what people were going to pick up on from the meeting. And and I don't know. In situations like this, the, the Vatican isn't going to say anything. And so they're 
kind of put in this position of <laughs> even if he's not sharing the full context of the Pope's remarks, they're not going to they're not going to jump in. So he's kind of I don't know. It's a, it's his work, right? Yeah. We're taking him at his work. Yeah. I mean, and I totally understand it. Like he's he's only human. He's been the subject of this very public acrimonious debate among bishops for almost a year now. So it's only human to want to defend yourself. Right. And I, you know, I, I would, I would love to know what their whole conversation was because maybe it was, I mean, who knows if they talked about abortion or not, but it could have been fruitful. Right. And it's not to say that, you know, I don't think either of us are suggesting that President Biden's position on that issue is, you know, really like one that we would support. But this question of, it, you know, constantly like demanding uh, sort of a public rebuke um, in the communion line specifically, is is not led to any sort of dialogue at all with this administration. That we, right, we've got the second Catholic president, and there are a number of issues that we could work together on with with him and his administration. And it seems thus far the only story that any Catholic hears about is this question of abortion and communion and denying, and it's got to stop. Yeah, and we'll find out soon enough. The bishops have their annual meeting uh, this November, and they're going to be debating this document on on communion. And we'll see if if they end up coming out with it and if it includes language around uh, pro-choice politicians or not. What's our next story, Zach? We don't do this often, but I thought this month's prayer intention from Pope Francis was particularly relevant for for people our age. Yeah, um, definitely. So in case people didn't know, every month Pope Francis comes out with a prayer intention. It's part of this thing called the Pope's Worldwide Prayer Network. And this year he's asking people to pray for those who suffer from depression or burnout. Um, the, the specific prayer is, let us pray that people who suffer from depression or burnout will find support and a light that opens them up to life. And I, yeah, I think it's resonated with a lot of people. Um, I tweeted out about it and, you know, I don't often get that many likes. And <laughs> people were definitely looking to share this, um, which is understandable. I uh, I have been feeling a little burnout over the past two years, which is like crazy to think that <laughs> yeah. like between the pandemic and elections and bishops. You are much it's... more prone by your nature, I think, to... Yeah, overwork yourself <laughs> than I am. I am much more. Anytime a, a break is presented to me, I jump <laughs> at it. Um, but I thought this was really interesting, right? Particularly the Pope talking about um, mental health issues with depression, but also the yeah. burnout and overworking side of things, because that's also that's an issue that some people. It's a matter of they there. There's like a spiritual problem there, right? Like they need to. They can't unplug, or yeah. um, they have a hard time turning their identity away from something other than work. And for other people, it really is a matter of justice, right? In terms of lots of people don't have control over uh, when and how they work and they're subject to unfair labor practices. And so it's this real mix that's like hitting all these different pockets of of our world. And seeing that the Pope is paying attention to that and praying for it, I, I found you know, really moving and important. Yeah, totally. And this comes after we talked about a couple of weeks ago, him calling for a shorter work work day. That's a really good point. I <laughs> did not realize if he's like- He really wants us to work less. <laughs> well- Are oh, you listening to that, bosses? Bosses, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, maybe- Maybe the Pope's feeling a little burned out. Like he, you know, he is someone that could take his own advice here because he's not getting any younger, and he's he keeps up like such a busy schedule. But even when he's not traveling, when he's just you know being the Pope in the Vatican, it's still just like a relentless grind. He met the same day he met Joe Biden. He met the president of of South South Korea, Korea, and then the next day met the Prime Minister of India. So it's like really those are intense meetings that you have to prepare for, and you're you know different languages and having to go through translators. Like that's got to be taxing on his mind. And I actually did have the thought because he was planning to go to the COP26 meeting in Glasgow and then canceled a couple weeks beforehand, and maybe. He Maybe just he needed a break, out, honestly, which yeah. he should do. Um, <laughs> so, Pope Francis, uh, we know you're listening. Um, we don't. I guess we don't know that. But we hope you're listening. We hope you're listening. And if you are, please just take a break. Give yourself a vacation. Yeah. You deserve it. We're praying for you, too. Mm-hmm. 
Joining us from New Haven is Ross Douthit. Ross is an op-ed columnist for The New York Times and the author of several books, including most recently, The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Ross. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure. So brought you on to talk about the January 6th commission. It's <laughs> <laughs> a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> I, um, I've got I've got many many thoughts, man. How many, <laughs> how many hours of podcast tape do you have? Well, maybe maybe later we can get to that. But first, I want to first congratulate you on the new book. And I guess the place I want to start for listeners who haven't haven't read the book yet, it's a memoir documenting uh, your your time with Lyme disease and trying to figure out what the heck's going on with your body. Could you just maybe first start and describe that? those first few months of, you know, experiencing the symptoms for the first time? And what was the reception you were getting from the doctors you were seeing? Sure. So yeah, this book is a, an act of radical exposure <laughs> that I'm <laughs> hoping will be helpful uh, to the many people who either struggle with chronic illness themselves or know somebody who struggles with it. Um, I did not expect to struggle with chronic illness. And the book starts... I guess six, six to six and a half years ago now, when uh, my wife and I and our two kids were in the process of moving from a too small row house in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., to a kind of rural fantasy land, this, you know, ridiculous 1790s farmhouse that we had bought in um, Connecticut, where we were both from originally. And basically, in between the time that we sort of finalized the deal on the house and the move and when we actually moved. So during these three months when we were still in Washington, D.C., having having bought a house, you know, six hours to the northeast. Which you, um, which you guys were thrilled about, right? Which were we were thrilled. thrilled. No, no, this was, this yeah. was a, I'm, I'm being, you know, I regard it with a sort of jaundiced, <laughs> jaundiced view now. <laughs> Understandably. No, this was like the peak of our whole life plan to get out of DC, get out of sort of the, you know, the climate of um, the modern, you know, elite metropolis and, you know, lead our, our own private Benedict option, if you will, uh, you know, to, to choose a different kind of charged example, but no, to, you know, not to, not to found a, a religious commune or anything like that, but to live happily in the country with land and maybe a vegetable garden and some chickens and, um, yeah, a lot of nature. That was the goal. Uh, and instead, while we were sort of in transit, but while we were actually still in Washington, D.C., I became rather swiftly, uh, horribly and mysteriously sick. Um, I had, you know, sort of bizarre migratory pain all over my body. I had phantom heart attacks. I slept for one hour a night. Um, I lost 40 pounds, uh, some of which I probably needed to lose, but I lost it in about a month and a half and looked, looked sort of like a ghost by late August. And none of the doctors in DC could figure out what was wrong with me. They ran sort of normal blood tests and everything came back, at least as far as they could tell, normal. And I was just in terrible shape and I just sort of, you know, pinballed from doctor to doctor. Um, and in every case, the sort of end point of the tests and the conversation was, you're probably under a lot of stress and somehow out of stress or anxiety, you are conjuring these, conjuring these symptoms. And in fact, so I was prescribed sleeping medication, antidepressants, Xanax, all those kinds of things. And I ended up in fact, seeing not one, but two psychiatrists during this period uh, both of whom, to their great credit, told me that they thought I had a physical illness <laughs> and that I should, you know, that they were happy to talk to me, but that I should be looking elsewhere for help. And so it was only when we actually made them finally somehow dragged ourselves up to uh, up to our, our dream house, supposedly in Connecticut, that I finally found doctors who said, well, you know, this seems an awful lot like Lyme disease, which is a disease sort of endemic to the northeastern United States that doctors in Connecticut see all the time and doctors in Washington, D.C. definitely do not. 
Well, I have to I have to say the one part of your book I took issue with was your description of Northern Virginia as this soulless place yes. that you can possibly <laughs> settle down with with your family. And if only you had given Arlington a chance, no, this <laughs> none is, of this would have happened. This was all all punishment for, among other <laughs> sins, a very special kind of New England snobbery that uh, <laughs> I, I especially cultivated because not only not only did I refuse to do the sensible thing and move to Northern Virginia, I also vetoed a very sensible four or five bedroom uh, modern build house that my wife had, was most interested in that uh, had we bought it, none of these other events would have been set in motion. Um, and yeah, so I was I was justly punished for desiring some sort of antique white shingled house with a yeah. barn and a field and all of these other you know, accoutrements of, of folly, basically. Yeah. All right. Well, we do want to get into whether this was some sort of divine punishment. You are the modern day Job. <laughs> but first, I did want to talk about um, your approach to writing about pain in the book. I think most people, including myself, would not think a memoir about a chronic disease would, you know, be a page turner or something that's you really want to dig into, but I found myself unable to stop reading. And part of that, I think, is that your writing about pain is so compelling that you're just desperate to turn the page and hopefully, hopefully have the next it get page. <laughs> and hopefully there's some <laughs> relief on offer later in the book. And so <laughs> it's hard to put down in that regard. Um, so I'm wondering, how did you think about writing about pain in a way that um, really made it real for the reader? I'm glad that you were inspired to continue turning the pages. And I mean, I, I guess, you know, part of what I was trying to do in the book was try and capture something that I myself just had no understanding of before I got sick. And, uh, you know, th that if you tell someone, oh, so-and-so has a chronic illness, you still have this image, I think, of it as something like, you know, this these sort of twinges around your body and a feeling of lassitude where you're sort of, you know, it's like you have to retire to your fainting couch or something. Um, and really, it's nothing remotely like that. It was much more of a sort of feeling of being grabbed or assaulted in one area of the body. And as soon as you get used to the pain in that area, it switches, you know, from your neck to your throat, to your groin, to your head over the course of a day or a week, um, and so on. And so, yeah, it was, I mean, it was quite, it was quite terrible in, with a certain kind of distance. It was a very interesting embodied experience of a kind that I wouldn't wish on anyone, but I, I feel like I've gained some knowledge about the ways that your body can become something other than a cooperator and friend, <laughs> I guess, I guess you could say. It, it seemed, I don't know, cosmically tragic or fitting that you would stumble into a, a disease that is also a political minefield of sorts that yes. I, I certainly was unaware that the debate about, you know, chronic Lyme is, you know, inspired New Yorker think pieces and it's an ongoing debate. And you find yourself sort of at odds with the established medical community about what exactly chronic Lyme is and whether or not you had it. Could you talk about what that was like? Because I, I think in your political writing, you're not afraid to be hacking somewhere differently than what the established thinking is. But you talk about in the book starting to feel like you're actually a crazy person um, at times when you're when you're going going through this and feeling like it. And how how difficult that was as someone who thinks of themselves as like a a smart rational person. What was that like? Because I do think that like having trouble navigating the medical community or the the healthcare system in general is a very universal experience that you know extends beyond the Lyme debate. Yeah, and and but it wasn't again. It wasn't an experience. Certainly not on this scale that I had had before. Um, and so the way the Lyme debate works is that there is a sort of official CDC-approved view of Lyme disease, which says it's a disease, you get it from, from tick bites. Um, I probably got it literally while doing the inspection of our somewhat overgrown uh, country house. And, you know, it causes all kinds of problems, like the problems I had, you know, joint pain, inflammation all over the body. Um, but you're supposed to be able to treat it with four to six weeks of antibiotics. 
And if you treat it for four to six weeks, most people get better. And then there's this group of people, anywhere from five to 25% of patients, depending on contested arguments about numbers, um, who don't get better. And so at that point, the official view says, well, um, there's nothing more we can do. Long-term antibiotics are too risky, and we don't have good studies showing whether they work. Um, we don't really think that you still have the infection. We think maybe your immune system has just been triggered and isn't working right anymore. Or again, maybe you are, um, you know, like the doctors I saw in DC, under stress from having been sick and are sort of conjuring lingering symptoms psychosomatically. Uh, so that's, that's, again, this sort of official view. Then the unofficial view, which is held by a very large number of doctors, especially in New England, but elsewhere in the country, and is not, you know, it's not, it's a view that extends to encompass researchers at prominent universities. It's not sort of completely outré, but it is an unofficial non-establishment view is that, look, if people get sick and you give them and you give them a treatment and they just remain sick, they probably still have the same illness. The Lyme bacteria is very good at evading both your immune system and antibiotics. And there's every reason to think that people who stay sick just still have the same infection and need to be treated with not just one antibiotic, but combinations of antibiotics. And in some cases, stranger things than that over months or even years. And that is, you know, initially, obviously, I wanted to believe <laughs> the official view, which said that once I found doctors who told me I had Lyme disease, I could take a month of antibiotics and feel better. But since I took a month of antibiotics and sort of stabilized, but didn't actually get better, I then sort of by necessity, entered into and accepted the unofficial view, which, you know, I, I believe is essentially correct. Um, but I believe that because in addition to, you know, having read far more research papers on Lyme disease than I care to admit, I did what the unofficial school told me to do. I did, in fact, a particularly extreme version of it. Um, and it was the only thing that very, very slowly and very, very gradually helped me to get better. And that's an experience, as as you said, that, you know, sort of inevitably changes your attitude at some level towards ideas about sort of expertise and consensus and all of these issues that we end up debating um, in politics um, and even, you know, obviously in debates about COVID, right, which is, you know, the other, as I was literally starting to work on this book, the pandemic hit and we suddenly had a different disease front and center with endless controversy surrounding it. Um, and I think on, on what, it, you know, on COVID, I have... I would say very generally pretty consensusy opinions on you know like vaccines are good and you you know you should get vaccinated but you can't help after an experience like this also having you know real sympathy certainly for people who try weird things um when they get sick with a novel pandemic and also just for people who have this sort of you know fundamental skepticism that the medical system has their best interests at heart. And this is something I think that gets lost under polarized conditions, because there's an assumption for people who think about politics all the time that everybody who's a vaccine skeptic is a, you know, hardcore Republican Tucker Carlson viewer who's just, you know, taking their marching orders from vaccine skeptics on the right. And that obviously exists. But a lot of vaccine hesitancy is just rooted in the real diversity of bad experiences with the medical system that I've, I've now had and lots and lots of other people um, have had as well. You talk in the book about kind of our, our modern world is very skilled at hiding suffering. But then once you've made that transition like you did to, to the world of the, of the sick, um, you kind of like all the pain that people are experiencing comes out of the woodwork and you see just like how widespread suffering can be, you know, in this world of modern medicine and safety protocols and all of that. So I'm wondering if having made that transition, if it's maybe broadened your vision of um, suffering in in our country, not just like pain, but other marginalized communities that are suffering in some way in ways that um, 
isn't always visible to those of us who are doing well physically and financially? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's sort of two effects, right? One is what you just said. There is to sort of go along with the increasing loneliness and isolation. There's also a kind of secret handshake side to being really to sort of we- really and weirdly sick. And then, the, yeah, I mean, the, the strange thing with Lyme disease, of course, is that it it really is a disease of a disease of the suburbs and the country. There are ways in which it's a very like white and upper middle class kind of kind of disease. And one thing that's definitely brought home to me about the experience is, and again, easier for me to say now than five years ago, but is how fortunate I was in the sense of having to cope with something like this while having, you know, you know, the privileges that I have also sort of like the capacities that I have, like I'm, you know, a very internet savvy person who relatively speaking, it's good at navigating complex sort of systems like the medical system, getting doctors to see me, those, those kind of things. And we have this broad based epidemic of chronic pain in, in the U S and, um, that is, you know, a sort of, a sort of broadly working class phenomenon in post-industrial America, especially. And I feel like I have a clearer understanding of how, um, how if you strip away the advantages that I brought to an experience like this, how much worse sort of pain that doesn't get better and that the medical system doesn't have an easy solution for can be and how it then I think very naturally ties into, you know, the stuff we talk about with deaths of despair and drug addiction and suicide and, and all of these, all of these kind of things. Do you, uh, do you have uh, more sympathy for Pope Francis as <laughs> someone who also suffers from chronic pain with sciatica? Abs- absolutely. Yeah. No. And this was this, this, you know, this, this started, right. So the, you know, you're always trying to interpret, interpret the signs of the times. And, uh, my illness started basically right at the time that Donald Trump came down the Trump Tower escalator, right? So it was sort of like the entire political world was clearly living inside my, my bizarre <laughs> illness. And it also happened just as a lot of the really hot, the hot Francis era controversies in which, yeah, as some, some of your listeners may know, I often took the more conservative side were heating up. Um, and so then the question was, you know, obviously, is is God smiting me for being critical <laughs> of Pope Francis? So, so um, you do get to this this point where I think everybody, I, or almost everybody, who has a, a bout with a serious illness or a devastating, unexplainable thing, where you're addressing the question of theodicy, which I'm assuming you had you had addressed that question before in your life. Um, yeah, but in or, a, in a totally abstract intellectual way. No, I mean, I wrote about theodicy all the time. I wrote entire books about American Christianity that spend a lot of time criticizing, you know, this, the dumb theodicy of Joel Osteen, right? Like these kind of things. Um, and yeah, it's just very different to uh, encounter those kind of arguments up, up close uh, and personal. And as I say in the book, I, I mean, I found that you know, the, the experience did like, I didn't have a crisis of faith. I wasn't like, Oh, you know, God, if, if this can happen to me, it means that God is, does not exist or, you know, Christianity is a myth. It was quite, quite the opposite. I ended up like very consciously leaning on, um, you know, the idea that there was something to be gained from this, that this was part of the story of my life and had some kind of purpose that I, that I needed to understand. But with that, you know, jokes about smiting aren't, aren't entirely jokes, right? Like, you know, you, you do have to think about like, if, if this is something that God permits to happen to you with the idea that something good can come of it, then that's sort of a fearful, it's a fearful thing to contemplate. Especially since, you know, who knows what he might get up to next. You say in the book that before this experience, your faith was pretty intellectual um, and and, and abstract, as you said before. But Catholicism is a very embodied faith. And so did you discover that part of the Catholic faith in a new way through this experience? And what did that look like in practice? I certainly think I came to understand 
the the nature of embodiment a little bit a little bit more clearly i would say that at times the the experience was more sort of not not quite gnostic but at least cartesian where i had more of a sense than i'd had before of like my mind or soul or self as something sort of you know in certain ways separate from my body but then almost imprisoned by it um which is not precisely you know how much of catholic tradition wants you to think about your body you know the 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 ideal is a kind of integration of of soul and body not a sort of gnostic fantasy of escape you know my the flirtations with the gnostic heresy here can be remanded <laughs> to the papal inquisition <laughs> Um, there's this part that this insight that you, you bring out that, um, I've been thinking about a lot in that in some ways the world has gotten really a, a lot better at alleviating suffering and correlating with that, um, you know, you know, infinite mortalities drops. We, we only, we don't have plagues so often now. Um, and you know, we have, we have ways to deal with pain in, way, in ways we didn't used to. But at the same time that's happening, there is a rise in this problem of understanding, like, why could God let this happen? And it, it's sort of giving entrees into um, atheism or just sort of misun like not understanding how God could exist in the world like that. And, and you suggest that, you know, people who were, you know, living in a world where everything was awful around them, we're just we're, we're we're able to lean on God in a way um, that didn't just, have the sense of injustice when something yeah. bad happens to them. Yeah. Like why me? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I mean that that was that was sort of a theory that I held before this experience. And you know, if some of my theories about the world were sort of undercut by being sick, that that theory I think was somewhat confirmed. Right? That like there there is this sense when you get sick like this in a society that is you know, again, by global human standards, well off and comfortable, and you yourself have been pretty physically comfortable for most of your life, there's this feeling of outrage, right? Like, how how can you know, this is, this is absurd. <laughs> it's like, there must be some mistakes, sir. I mean, I'd like to speak to the manager. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I do think this sense that like, you know, life could be so comfortable. At times it is so comfortable in in the modern world. So then to still have all this pain and suffering um, somehow feels more unjust to us than it would have to people who, you know, could expect to have a third of their children die in infancy, could sort of be confronted with the reality of death all the time. And I will say that, like, as I have, you know, it's helped that I've gotten better, but I, I no longer have that sense of sort of outrage around physical pain. So what you mentioned before that it's, it's not always clear what, what people can offer those who are suffering with chronic pain. And, and you talk in the book, um, kind of poignantly about the experience of having friends trying to accompany you uh, through this illness and at times it it being almost painful for them to be present to you. Um, so I'm wondering if you could just talk about that experience. What were the ways that people uh, could accompany you that were helpful? I think two, you know, the, the sort of two best things that you can offer to a suffering friend are on the one hand sort of presence and a kind of absorption not expecting to like come up with the perfect thing to say to magically make your friend feel better but just to sort of be you know an understanding sounding board for their understandable unhappiness is i think often good um and then the other thing and again this is just sort of goes back to my own misconceptions about chronic illness but what people with chronic illness in general want is to be taken seriously, right? As actual sick people. I have a, a somewhat personal question, but this you you did write a pretty personal memoir after all. I'm curious if you could say a little bit about what this taught you about your your vocation, both as a, as a husband and father, um, but also a writer, because you have these these roles in your life that um, you're still in some way able to continue on doing, but are definitely disrupted and challenged by by the illness. 
when you are limited in some profound way, you have to do the things that you can, right? Like I did not feel like I was a husband in full or a father in full at the worst periods of this illness. Um, but I did manage, I think, to sort of keep playing crucial parts of those roles while waiting for their fullness to return. And, you know, there's a, a moment in the book that I think, I, yeah, late, sort of late in the book where I'm, you know, I'm doing a little better, but not at all well. And we go to Minnesota with to do a couple things to visit my wife's friends who live in Minneapolis and to, to do an event. Uh, I was doing an event with Cornell West at the University of St. Thomas. Um, and this was like, you know, both the visit and the event went really well for everyone who wasn't me, right? Like my kids are having a great time playing with this other family's kids. My wife is always happier when she's seeing her best friend. The event itself was really successful. You know, any event with Cornell West tends to be really successful, right? But, you know, I'm there as sort of the straight man. And, you know, you just sort of, you, I by no means achieve this most of the time, but in that moment, you could sort of see, all right, like this is a phase in your life when you're not, you're not getting much enjoyment out of anything you're doing, but other people can, and you can try your best to be a sort of conduit for their happiness, whether it's an audience watching a talk or your family on a trip, um, and, and accept that as sort of the only victory you can win in that moment. And obviously, you're also hoping that your own happiness returns. And professionally, I would also just say, like, you know, when I look back, at my own writing, you know, I, I noticed that in the worst of the illness, I was at my most vehement as a writer. Uh, and this took the form of, I was at my most vehemently anti-Trump in my, in my political columns. And I was, uh, my, in, when I was writing a lot about debates in the Catholic church, my most vehemently anti, uh, parts of the agenda of Pope Francis. Um, and I don't, I don't sort of repent of the perspective, the positions that I took. I still think Trump was bad and should not have been president. And I still have a lot of, let's call them strong doubts <laughs> about this pontificate. Um, but the sort of, as I've gotten better, I feel like the whole experience has given me just more distance on political and sort of ecclesial debates. Like the, the, the world is the world is what it is and getting incredibly hysterical about it in a newspaper <laughs> column week in and week out. Um, not that I was incredibly hysterical. I was obviously always, you know, very controlled and serious, of course. but <laughs> yeah. of course, but, um, but there, there is some sense in which, you know, history is in God's hands. And, you know, if, if God wills that Donald Trump is going to bring down the American Republic, well, I'm not going to be happy about that, um, but I've seen enough of the sort of, you know, the, the the deep strangeness and mystery of human life to, you know, not not let that fear of some political hypothetical sort of dominate my every waking moment. Ho hoping the aggregators pick that up that out that says God wills that Donald Trump is bringing down the American <laughs> That's public. the tweet. So Timestamp that. Timestamp that. Cut it out. Yeah. From the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ross, congratulations on the book and on your growing family. That's very exciting. We do have one final question that we ask all of our guests, and we've asked you previously, and that is if you could canonize one person, Catholic or not, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why? And just to remind you, last time you did G.K. Chesterton. I'm actually, I'm actually going to cheat, and um, you know, I am a, I am a loyal New Havenite, and you know, we have just, we have just seen the beatification of the founder of the Knights of Columbus, Father Michael J. McGivney, and um, uh, whose, whose earthly remains are in the church that I attend here in New Haven, and. Uh, that church is itself going through some turmoil. The Dominican order, which has been in charge of the church for about a hundred years, has been asked to leave in a sort of drama of Northeastern Catholic decline. That's, you know, the kind of thing I've written about in a general way in other cases. And now it's sort of a specific, a specific 
sort of internal church issue and conflict that's pretty depressing. So against that depressing local backdrop, um, <laughs> I, I think that it would be a splendid thing if Blessed Michael McGivney became Saint Michael McGivney, and God knows we could use his intercessions. All, All right. right, St. Michael McGivney. Awesome. Ross, thanks again. The book is The Deep Places, A Memoir of Illness and Discovery, and you can find it wherever books are sold. Uh, thanks so much. <laughs> is there anything else you want to plug before we let you go? No, I think I think that's, <laughs> people should buy my book and only my book for at least the next six months. So we can just- And your wife's book. Oh, right? you, you, you know what? That's absolutely right. And I cannot, <laughs> I have now failed as a husband. You're welcome. My wife, my, actually, no, the truth is that my wife uh, wrote a very serious scientific book with the slightly amusing title of Mom Genes about the science of the, of, um, the maternal instinct and the maternal transformation. And it's interesting for all those reasons, but if you read my book and are interested in- some of my wife's perspective on some of the events that I've described, you can find some of that perspective in <laughs> one of the concluding chapters of her book. So if you are a completist for Douthat <laughs> family drama, or if you just want a really good, a really good book, um, Abigail Tucker's Mom Jeans should also be on your shopping list. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Ross. Thank you for helping me fulfill my duties <laughs> as a husband. Your reward will be great in paradise. <laughs> uh, man. All right. Okay. Thank you, guys. <laughs> for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Want to shout out some new Patreon supporters. Uh, thank you so much to Jonathan Sieg, Valerie Oxford, Marissa Miller-McDowell, and Chris Goggle. Uh, all signed up for Patreon in the last last week, and I think I know why. Yes, we came out with our very first bonus episode for our Patreon community. Uh, we had a great conversation with our colleague, Jim McDermott who's a, a Jesuit and a pop culture expert about Midnight Mass, the really popular Netflix show that is just seeping in Catholicism. And that was our first one. So if and we're looking to do more of them, right? Lots of people tweeted us wanting us to hear our thoughts on Midnight Mass. Um, and there wasn't really like a format in the, the, the current structure of the show to do that. And so we were really excited to do this in Patreon. So if you're if you're looking for some more like conversations that are of a Jesuitical nature, but don't fit into the normal Jesuitical show. Uh, we're looking for topics. So, you know, join the Patreon community, uh, start a conversation there. We're we're all ears. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be TV shows. It could be books, the latest viral TikTok, anything. We want to talk to you or to with each other about the things you're interested in. Yes. And so if that's something you're into or you just want to support the show and check out the other benefits, um, we revamped them recently. So go check it out. You can do all of that and more at patreon.com slash America Media to get that bonus episode on Midnight Mass and other things. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. You're up, Zach. So I wanted to pick up on your topic last week about asking for prayers mm -hmm. and not feeling like 
that's something you're super comfortable with. Um, it got me thinking about what I do when other people ask me for prayers. Um, I was actually thinking this like even when we were talking about the Pope's prayer intention for the right. month, right? He's asking every like, everybody to pray for people who are suffering from depression and burnout. And I looked at that and immediately went, oh, that's really nice. I'm glad yeah. the Pope's <laughs> thinking about that. And I didn't at all think about how I was going to incorporate that into my prayer life. So A, sorry, Pope Francis. Um, <laughs> but it extends beyond that too, right? I feel like oftentimes we're scrolling through our feeds mm-hmm. and you see someone who some both either a really good thing or a really bad thing. I think those are the things we share on social media, both yeah. of which often, you know, are accompanied by requests for prayers. Does does clicking like count as a prayer? Because, <laughs> yeah, that's what I usually do. To I be think honest. it can. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's it's it depends. Right. It's I, in some ways it's all about intentionality. And right. right we're, I don't think we're here to put guardrails on what counts as prayer and what doesn't. Um, and depending on. You know, if you are if you were in that act of that tap, like lifting a person up in into God and in yeah. God's care, then yeah, I totally think so. But I'm definitely guilty of either tapping like kind of mindlessly and just checking a box, or just or scrolling past because it's a person I haven't talked to in ten years and they might feel weird about it. Um, is that something that you resonates with you? Yeah, totally. And it, I, I see this more on, I don't really spend a lot of time on Facebook. And so it's on Twitter. And so it's often people I don't even know. And it's oft, and sometimes there are just very vague ones, like pray for a personal intention. And I never know what to do with that. Like, what what does it mean for me to pray for something I don't have any idea what it is? And like, what am I supposed to do? Well, I feel like the, there's a very easy Catholic answer to that, which is like, I, I, I don't know. One of the things I've started doing um, and I'm probably at like 50% success rate is if I'm in a situation where I'm scrolling by, it's just like, all right, I'm going to do a Hail Mary right now because it both like causes me to pause, but also I am like, not to sound too pious, but just like entrusting these prayers to Mary to bring to God, right? Like I don't have to know what it is. I'm sure it will get where it's going is something that someone has said to me before (laughs) or where it needs to go. For Lent one year, I took up the practice of just like writing down one person's name every day as just as you know this is the person I'm going to keep in my prayer and I found that really helpful I don't know why I didn't keep doing it it's not <laughs> like you can only be good Spiritual at prayer during Lent but it, but there's superpowers that are <laughs> yeah. activated then so understandable so listeners uh question I'm going to leave you with this week is how do you respond when someone asks you to pray for them is that do you stop right then and there is there, uh, a, do you write them down in the notes app? Do you you have a, uh, a journal where you're doing this? Um, or do you also suck at it a lot of the times like me? Um, so something to think about. And if there's any anything that's worked for you, um, we'd love to hear about it. Um, so shoot us a line. All right, I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media and is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>